Thank you. Thank you very much. I am happy to have made it and to be here with all of you. And I, I did just um, decide to read um, only from this manuscript in progress, a book that will be out next year. And so I only brought it so that I couldn't change my mind halfway through if I look at your faces and it doesn't seem to be going so well. Illumination. Always there is something more to know. What lingers at the edge of thought, awaiting illumination. As in this second handbook, full of annotations, daring the margins in pencil, a light stroke as if the writer of these small replies meant not to leave them forever, meant to erase evidence of this private interaction. Here, a passage underlined, there, a single star on the page, as in a night sky, cloud-swept and hazy, where only the brightest appears, a tiny spark. I follow its coded message, try to read in it the direction of the solitary mind that thought to pencil in a jagged arrow. It is a bolt of lightning. Where it strikes, I read the line over and over as if I might discern the little fire set, the flames of an idea licking the page, how knowledge burns. Beyond the exclamation point, its thin agreement, angle of surprise, there are questions. The word, why? So much is left untold, between the printed words and the self-conscious scrawl, between what is said and not, white space framing the story, the way the past, unwritten, eludes us. So much is implication, the afterimage of measured syntax, always there, ghosting the margins that words, their black-lined authority, do not cross. Even as they rise up to meet us, the white page hovers beneath, silent, incendiary, waiting. Uh, in colonial Mexico, the uh, Mexican Costa paintings illustrated the mixed blood unions that were taking place in the colony. I got interested in these because not only did the paintings sort of show the families, uh, the, the father, uh, the mother, and the offspring they would have produced, they were printed, uh, painted in series of 16, always beginning with the white Spaniard father. They also had the taxonomies created to name the people in these families right there on the painting. So uh, image and word right there together interacting. I was also interested in um, some of the, the idea that um, after a few generations of uh, uh, intermarriage, um, Indian or native blood could be, um, through a series of uh, process of alchemy, purified to whiteness, but that um, the belief was that the taint of black blood was irreversible. So you had names like mulatto returning backwards, hold yourself in midair, and I don't understand you. Uh, anyone who was born mixed blood in the colony was at birth uh, recorded in the book of Costas, which was the book for mixed bloods. This is after a series by Juan Rodriguez Suarez, circa 1715. Taxonomy. One, de Espanol y de India produce mestizo. 
The canvas is a leaden sky behind them, heavy with words, gold letters inscribing an equation of blood. This plus this equals this as if a contract with nature or a museum label, ethnographic, precise. See how the father's hand beneath its crown of lace curls around his daughter's head. She's nearly fair as he is. Calidad, see it in the brooch at her collar the lace framing her face. An infant, she is born over the servant's left shoulder, bound to him by a sling, the plain blue cloth knotted at his throat. If the father, his hand on her skull, divines as the physiognomist does the mysteries of her character, discursive, legible on her light flesh, in the soft curl of her hair, we cannot know it. So gentle the eye he turns toward her. The mother, glancing sideways toward him, the scarf on her head, white as his face, his powdered wig, gestures with one hand a shape like the letter C. C, she seems to say, what we have made. The servant, still a child, cranes his neck, turns his face up toward all of them. He is dark as history, origin of the word native, the weight of blood, a pale mistress on his back, heavier every year. 2. De Espanol y Negra Produce Mulatto Still, the centuries have not dulled the sullenness of the child's expression. If there is light inside him, it does not shine through the paint that holds his face in profile, his domed forehead, eyes nearly closed beneath a heavy brow. Though inside, the boy's father stands in his cloak and hat. It's as if he's just come in or that he's leaving. We see him transient, rolling a cigarette, myopic, his eyelids drawn against the child passing before him. At the stove, the boy's mother contorts, watchful, her neck twisting on its spine, red beads yoked at her throat like a necklace of blood, her face so black she nearly disappears into the canvas, the dark wall upon which we see the words that name them. What should we make of any of this? Remove the words above their heads, put something else in place of the child, a table perhaps upon which the man might set his hat, or a dog upon which to bestow the blessing of his touch, and the story changes. The boy is a palimpsest of paint, layers of color, history rendering him that precise shade of in-between. Before this, he was nothing, blank canvas, before image or word, before a last brushstroke fixed him in his place. Three, de Espanol y Mestiza produce Castiza. How not to see in this gesture the mind of the colony? 
In the mother's arms, the child hinged at her womb, dark cradle of mixed blood, call it Mexico, turns toward the father, reaching to him as if back to Spain, to the promise of blood alchemy, three easy steps to purity. From a Spaniard and an Indian, a mestizo. From a mestizo and a Spaniard, a castizo. From a castizo and a Spaniard, a Spaniard. We see her here, one generation away, nearly slipping her mother's careful grip. Four, the Book of Castas. Call it the Catalog of Mixed Bloods, or the Book of Not, not Spaniard, not white, but mulatto returning backwards, or hold yourself in midair, and the Morisca, the Lobo, the Chino, Sambo, Albino, and the Note Entiendo, the I Don't Understand You. Guidebook to the colony, record of each crossed birth, it is the typology of taint, of stain, blemish, sullying spot, that which can be purified, that which cannot, Canaan's black fate, how like a dirty joke it seems, what do you call that space between the dark geographies of sex? Call it the taint, as in, it taint one and it taint the other, Illicit and yet naming still what is between. Between her parents, the child, mulatto returning backwards, cannot slip their hold. The triptych their bodies make, in paint, in blood, her name, written down in the book of castas, all her kind in thrall to a word. This next poem is after a chalk drawing by J. H. Hasselhorst, 1864. Knowledge. Whoever she was, she comes to us like this, lips parted, long hair spilling from the table like water from a pitcher, nipples drawn out for inspection. Perhaps to foreshadow the object she'll become, a skeleton on a pedestal, a row of skulls on a shelf. To make a study of the ideal female body, four men gather around her. She is young and beautiful and drowned, a Venus de Medici risen from the sea, sleeping. As if we could mistake this work for sacrilege, the artist entombs her body in a pyramid of light, a temple of science over which the anatomist presides. In the service of beauty, to know it, he lifts a flap of skin beneath her breast as one might draw back a sheet. We will not see his step-by-step parsing, a translation, Mary or Catherine or Elizabeth, to corpus, areola, vulva. In his hands, instruments of the empirical, scalpel, pincers, cold as the room must be cold, all the men in coats trimmed in velvet or fur, soft as the down of her pubis. Now one man is smoking, another tilts his head to get a better look. Yet another at the head of the table peers down as if enthralled. 
his fist on a stack of books. In the drawing, this is only the first cut, a delicate wounding, and yet how easily the anatomist blade opens a place in me. Like a curtain drawn upon a room in which each learned man is my father, and I hear again his words. I study my crossbreed child, misnomer and taxonomy, the language of zoology. Here he is all of them, the preoccupied man, an artist, collector of experience, the skeptic angling his head, his thoughts tilting toward what I cannot know. The marshaller of knowledge, knuckling down a stack of books, even the dissector, his scalpel in hand like a pen poised above me, aimed straight for my heart. So this next poem is about... um, a really uh, a pretty old miracle. Um, it's a it, it's a miracle that dates back in term in uh, pictorial representations to uh, the the mid 14th century. Though um, written versions of the myth appear in various languages in various countries um, much earlier than that, perhaps the 12th century. It's about uh, Saints Cosmas and Damien, who were the patron saints of medicine, and supposedly um, they performed. Um, an amputation, and then uh, a leg transplant, um, black donor, white recipient. Miracle of the Black Leg. One, always the dark body hewn asunder. Always one man is healed, his sick limb replaced, placed in another man's grave. The white leg buried beside the corpse or attached as if it were always there. If not for the dark appendage, you might miss the story beneath this story. What remains each time the myth changes? How, in one version, the doctors harvest the leg from a man four days dead in his tomb at the church of a martyr. Or, in another, desecrate a body fresh in the graveyard at St. Peter in chains. There was buried just today an Ethiopian. Even now, it stays with us. When we mean to uncover the truth, we dig, say, unearth. Two. Emblematic in paint, signifier of the body's lacuna, the black leg is at once a grafted narrative, a redacted line of text, and in this scene, a dark stocking pulled above the knee. Here the patient is sleeping, his head at rest in his hand. Beatific, he looks as if he'll wake from a dream. On the floor beside the bed, a dead moor. Hands crossed at the groin, the swapped limb white and rotting, fused in place. And in the corner, a question, poised as if to speak the syntax of sloughing a snake's curved form. It emerges from the mouth of a boy like a tongue, and rooted in the body as knowledge. For centuries, this is how the myth repeats. The miracle in words or wood or paint is a record of thought. Three, 
See how the story changes. In one painting, the Ethiop is merely a body, featureless in a coffin so black he has no face. In another, the patient at the top of the frame seems to writhe in pain, the black leg grafted to his thigh. Below him, a mirror of suffering, the blackamoor, his body a fragment, arched across the doctor's lap as if dying from his wound. If not Eminence, the soul's bright anchor, blood passed from one to the other. What knowledge haunts each body? What history? What phantom ache? One man always low in a grave or on the ground, the other up high, closer to heaven. One man always diseased, the other a body in service, plundered. Four. Both men are alive in Violdo's carving. In twinned relief, they hold the same posture, the same pained face, each man reaching to touch his left leg. The black man on the floor holds his stump. Above him, the doctor restrains the patient's arm as if to prevent him touching the dark amendment of flesh. How not to see it? The men bound one to the other, symbiotic, one man rendered expendable, the other worthy of this sacrifice. Inversion after version, even when the Ethiopian isn't there. The leg is a stand-in, a black modifier against the white body, or a piece cut off, as in origin of the word comma, sejura in a story that's still being written. And this is a, another Costa painting. The title means... From albino and Spaniard, a return backwards is born. This is circa 1785 to 1790. Um, the artist is anonymous. Torna atras. The unknown artist has rendered the father a painter, and so we see him at his work, painting a portrait of his wife, their dark child watching nearby, a servant grinding colors in the corner. The woman poses just beyond his canvas and cannot see her likeness, her less-than-mirror image coming to life beneath his hand. He has rendered her homely, so unlike the woman we see in this scene, dressed in the late centuries fashion, a chicador, mark of beauty in the shape of a crescent moon affixed to her temple." If I say his painting is unfinished, that he has yet to make her beautiful, to match the elegant sweep of her hair, the graceful tilt of her head, has yet to adorn her dress with lace and trim, it is only one way to see it. You might see instead that the artist, perhaps to show his own skill, has made the father a dilettante, incapable of capturing his wife's beauty, or that he cannot see it, his mind's eye reducing her to what he's made, as if to reveal the illusion imminent in her flesh. If you consider the century's mythology of the body, that a dark spot marked the genitals of anyone with African blood, you might see how the black moon on her white face recalls it, the Rosita she passes to her child, marking him 
torna atras. If I tell you such words were born in the Enlightenment's hallowed rooms that the wages of empire is myopia, you might see the Father's vision as desire embodied in paint. This rendering of his wife, born of need to see himself as architect of truth, benevolent patriarch, father of uplift, ordering his domain. And you might see why, to understand my father, I look again and again at this painting, how it is that a man could love and so diminish what he loves. Bird in the House A gift, you said, when we found it. And because my mother was dead, I thought the cat had left it for me. The bird was black as omen, like a single crow, meaning sorrow. It was the year you'd remarried, summer, the fields high and the pond reflecting everything. The willow, the small dock, the crow overhead that doubled should have been an omen for joy. Forgive me, Father, that I brought to that house my grief. You will not recall telling me you could not understand my loss, not until your own mother died. Each night I'd awake from a dream, my heart battering my ribcage, a trapped wild bird. I did not know it then, but the cat had brought in a second grief. What was it but animal knowledge? Forgive me that I searched for meaning in everything you did, that I watched you bury the bird in the backyard, your back to me. I saw you flatten the mound, erasing it into the dirt." Mythology. One, Nostos. Here is the dark night of childhood, flickering lamplight, odd shadows on the wall, giant and flame projected through the clear frame of my father's voice. Here is the past come back as metaphor, my father as if to ease me into sleep, reciting the trials of Odysseus. Always he begins with the cyclops, light at the cave's mouth, bright as knowledge, the pilgrim honing a pencil-sharp stake. Two, questions posed by the dream. It's the old place on Jefferson Street I've entered, a girl again, the house dark and everyone sleeping, so quiet it seems I'm alone. What can it mean now, more than thirty years gone, to find myself at the beginning of that long hallway, knowing, as I did then, what stands at the other end? And why does the past come back like this, looming a human figure formed as if it had risen from the gulf of the crushed shells that paved our driveway, a sharp-edged creature that could only be conjured by longing? 
Why is it here, blocking the dark passage to my father's bookshelves, his many books? Three, siren. In the dream, I am driving the car, strapped to my seat as Odysseus is bound to the mast, my father calling to me from the back seat, his voice an echo in the space between us, luring me back to a past that never was. This is the treachery of nostalgia. This is the moment before a ship could crash onto the rocks, the car's back wheels tip over a cliff. Steering, I must be the crew, my ears deaf to the sound of my father's voice. I must be the captive listener, cleaving to his words. I must be singing this song to myself. Rotation. Like the moon that night, my father, a distant body, white and luminous. How small I was back then, looking up as if from dark earth. Distant, his body white and luminous, my father stood in the doorway. Looking up as if from dark earth, I saw him outlined in a scrim of light. My father stood in the doorway as if to watch over me as I dreamed. When I saw him outlined a scrim of light, he was already waning, turning to go. Once he watched over me as I dreamed, how small I was. Back then he was already turning to go, waning like the moon that night, my father And this uh, poem is a, a persona poem in the voice of Juan de Pareja, who was first slave and then apprentice to Diego Velasquez. Thrall, Juan de Pareja, 1670. He was not my father, though he might have been. I came to him the mulatto son of a slave woman, just that, as if it took only my mother to make me. A mulatto, meaning any white man could be my father. In his shop, bound to the muller, I ground his colors, my hands dusted black with fired bone, stained blue and flecked with glass, my nails edged vermilion as if my fingertips bled. In this way, just as I turned the pages of his books, I meant to touch everything he did. With Velasquez in Rome, a divination. At market, I lingered to touch the bright hulls of lemons, closed my eyes until the scent was oil and thinner, yellow ochre in my head. And once, the sudden taste of iron, a glimpse of red like a wound opening, the robes of the Pope at portrait, that bright shade of blood before it darkens, purpling nearly to black. Because he said painting was not labor, was the province of free men, I could only watch. Such beauty in the work of his hands, his quick strokes, a divine language I learned over his shoulder, my own hands tracing the air in his wake. 
Forbidden to answer in paint, I kept my canvases secret, hidden until Velasquez decreed unto me myself. Free, I was apprentice, he my master still. How intently at times could he fix his keen eye upon me, though only once did he fix me in paint, my color a study, my eyes wide as I faced him, a lace collar at my shoulders as though I'd been born noble, the yoke of my birth gone from my neck. In his hand, a long brush to keep him far from the canvas, far from it as I was. The distance between us doubled that he could observe me twice, stand closer to what he made. For years, I looked to it as one looks into a mirror. And so, in the calling of St. Matthew, I painted my own likeness, a freeman in the house of customs waiting to pay my duty, in my hand an answer, a slip of paper, my signature on it, Juan de Pereja, 1661, Velasquez, one year gone. Behind me, upright on a shelf, a forged platter, luminous as an aureole, just beyond my head. My face turned to look out from the scene, a self-portrait. To make it, I looked at how my master saw me. Then I narrowed my eyes. Now, at the bright edge of sleep, mother... She comes back to me as sound, her voice in the echo of bird call, a single syllable, again and again my name, one, 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 or a bit of song that, waking, I cannot grasp. Um, this poem has an epigraph from a travel narrative by Jonathan Dickinson from 1699 that reads, Being all stripped as naked as we were born and endeavoring to hide our nakedness, these cannibals took our books and tearing out the leaves would give each of us a leaf to cover us. On Captivity At the hands now of their captives, those they've named savages, do they say the word itself? Savagely, hissing that first letter, the serpent's image releasing thought into speech. For them now, everything is flesh, as if their thoughts made suddenly corporeal reveal even more their nakedness, the shame of it, their bodies rendered plain as the natives, homely and pale, their ordinary sex, the secret illicit hairs that do not, cannot, cover enough. Naked as newborns, this is how they are brought to knowledge. Adam and Eve in the new world, they have only the Bible to cover them. Think of it, a woman holding before her the torn leaves of Genesis, and a man covering himself with the good book's frontispiece, his own name inscribed on the page.
Calling, Mexico, 1969. Why not make a fiction of the mind's fictions? I want to say it begins like this, the trip, a pilgrimage, my mother kneeling at the altar of the black virgin enthralled, light streaming in a window, the sun at her back, holy water in a bowl she must have touched. What's left is palimpsest, one memory bleeding into another, overwriting it. How else to explain what remains? The sound of water in a basin I know is white. The sun behind her, light streaming in her face as if she were already dead, blurred as it will become. I want to imagine her before the altar, rising to meet us, my father lifting me toward her outstretched arms. What else to make of the mind's slick confabulations? What comes back is the sun's dazzle on the pool's surface, light filtered through water closing over my head, my mother, her body between me and the high sun, a corona of light around her face. Why not call it a vision? What I know is this. I was drowning and saw a dark Madonna. Someone pulled me through the water's bright ceiling, and I rose, initiate, from one life into another. Well, I'm going to finish up with three poems if I can find them. Okay. Artifact. As long as I can remember, you kept the rifle, your grandfather's, an antique you called it, in your study, propped against the tall shelves that held your many books. Upright, beside those hard-worn spines, it was another backbone of your past, a remnant I studied as if it might unlock, like the skeleton key its long body resembled, some door I had yet to find. Peering into the dark muzzle, I imagined a bullet as you described, spiraling through the bore and spinning straight for its target. It did not hit me then, the rifle I'd inherit, showing me how one life is bound to another, that hardship endures. For years, I admired its slender profile until, late one night, somber with drink, you told me it still worked, that you kept it loaded just in case. And I saw the rifle for what it is, a relic sharp as sorrow, the barrel hollow as regret. On Love. In each of the biographies I've read, there is small mention of this, how not yet a master of birds, not yet having learned to resurrect in paint what he loved and had killed, broke and needing money, Audubon attended the deathbeds of the dead and dying, the disinterred and the soon to be gone. Always the same urgency to his work. 
Like a clergyman or doctor, he was called day and night to sketch them. How easy it is to imagine the artist at work, leaning in, bent as if in reverence, drawing to the sound of their shallow breaths, those subjects who could open their eyes, lids fluttering, gaze back at him and then beyond, perhaps to the flicker of lamplight, the shadows grown long in the room, their pupils reflecting that darkness, the light dimming. I think of this now, drinking with my father, watching a tiny seizure overtake him, a departure barely perceptible but for the absence, the vacancy in his eyes before he's come back, dazed and blinking. How easy it is to imagine my words could resurrect him. How easy to tell myself this is love. Elegy for my father. I think by now the river must be thick with salmon. Late August, I imagine it as it was that morning. Drizzle needling the surface, mist at the banks like a net settling around us, everything damp and shining. That morning, awkward and heavy in our hip waders, we stalked into the current and found our places, you upstream a few yards and out far deeper. You must remember how the river seeped in over your boots and you grew heavier with that defeat. All day I kept turning to watch you, how first you mimed our guide's casting, then cast your invisible line, slicing the sky between us. And later, rod in hand, how you tried again and again to find that perfect arc, flight of an insect skimming the river's surface. Perhaps you recall I cast my line and reeled in two small trout we could not keep. Because I had to release them, I confess, I thought about the past, working the hooks loose, the fish writhing in my hands, each one slipping away before I could let go. I can tell you now that I try to take it all in, record it for an elegy I'd write one day, when the time came, your daughter, I was that ruthless. What does it matter if I tell you I learned to be? You kept casting your line, and when it did not come back empty, it was tangled with mine. Some nights, dreaming, I step again into the small boat that carried us out and watch the bank receding, my back to where I know we are headed. Thank you. Thank you.